Welcome to podcast number four of the Squashing the Markets with Bill Ullman. I am so pleased to welcome Angela Gallardi-Ceresny to the studio today. For the last three years, Angela has been the CEO of Climb Credit, a financial technology company focused on providing affordable loans to students. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me. Let's set the table to get, get this podcast underway, and let's talk about your journey to Climb Credit. How did you go from University of Michigan graduate to FinTech CEO? I started my career after the University of Michigan working in traditional financial services. So uh, I spent about nine years between American Express and Citibank uh, running teams that were responsible for uh, developing the underwriting strategy how we allocated credit to new and existing customers. And I worked on both uh, consumer lending and small business. While I was there, I had front row seat to the recession of the mid-2000s, saw how the credit crunch really sort of affected day-to-day Americans and small business owners. And I would say most importantly, the challenges that existed while working within the large financial institution on being able to serve those customers. Um, And so in 2012, I left Citi to join the uh, small but growing fintech ecosystem in New York. My first sort of experience uh, within that ecosystem was starting a company called Orchard, where we actually work together. Yep. And uh, that company was focused on providing software and data products to investors that were investing in the online lending market and essentially buying loans from non-bank lenders. And Orchard provided a suite of services to help uh, investors scale. I was the COO and CFO of that company, um, which we eventually sold to Cabbage, which is a small business lender based in Atlanta. Probably most of your listeners know about. <laughs> I um, hope they do. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, uh, I actually joined Climb initially as the COO in 2016, and it felt and then panned out to be a nice place for me to apply all of the learnings that I had accumulated over my years in working in underwriting and at banks and then also at Orchard. And in 2018, so about a year and a half ago, I was promoted to the CEO role. It's a great story. Tell tell us about, go back a second to the financial crisis in 2009, 10, 11, when you were at these bigger companies and what were some of the learnings there that you took, took away? Yeah. So I would say there were a couple um, I would say when I when I was working on consumer lending, I think the one of the big learnings for me um, among a lot, um, but was how ill prepared a lot of sort of your average American is uh, into making decisions about the right financial products for them. One anecdote that I recall often is someone who had uh, you know applied for a credit card a platinum card with American Express which carries a $400 annual fee and did at the time it had been 350 but it was you know hefty annual fee and and this person had thousands of dollars in 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 other credit card debts and other types of debts that they weren't paying and it was so striking to me that a person that was clearly struggling to keep up with their day-to-day payments would for some reason think that the right product for them would be the platinum card that has a $350 annual fee. 
uh, and that you have to pay off at the end of every month. That's you know how the charge yeah. cards work. And 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 to me, I think that when I saw that, it was a really big moment. Uh, at the time, it was a small moment, but it was a big moment for me because I realized Amex actually wasn't set up to help give that person probably the opposite. They were set up to market to those people so effectively that the, and the brand meant so much to that person yes. or the emotional part of owning a platinum card meant right. so much it made them make a not a wise decision. Exactly. And so then it's like I started looking into, okay, where are people supposed to learn about this? And really the answer is like there aren't. No. It's like nowhere. And so I actually ended up volunteering for Junior Achievement. Do you, do you know that yep. firm? So that they they are a nonprofit that goes into like elementary schools and teaches kids about budgeting and things like that. I, I ended up doing um, some work with them and just I got interested in in that uh, and in sort of like maybe the best way to allocate credit for people is not to have massive institutions that sort of own the entire life cycle because they're going to gravitate towards often the consumers that can make them the most money. But maybe like smaller firms or at least segments of firms that can help really create the tailored products that make sense for specific markets. Right. And that's what we do at Climb. So, and that, yeah, yeah. And let's, let's talk about Climb for a moment. What do you do? Tell us about the company. Tell us about what's different about borrowing and lending at, at Climb versus another student lending organization. Sure. Um, so Climb's mission is to expand access to quality education. And we do that through providing a number of products to schools that are delivering quality education. When we were founded and, and to this day, the problem that we're trying to solve is that um, is really twofold. So you see, on one hand, people are taking on more and more debt, 1.6 trillion sure, yeah. of college yeah. debt. You know, people are having trouble paying off. But then you also see that there's a skills gap. If you talk to many major employers, especially those that work in the trades, um, they will say that their biggest challenge is finding uh, people who have the skills to perform the work that they need. And so it's kind of a confounding situation we're in, where it's like people are spending more than ever to get educated, but not maybe the right skills. And so what we decided was we were going to focus on a market that is already delivering the education that leads to the skills where there's a skills gap, and that's vocational schools, trade schools. Of all types of trade schools, anything from cooking to coding? That's right. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I might use that. Uh, yeah, we work with all – we actually – we cover somewhere between 30 – 30 to 40 different career tracks. Um, the three big segments that we work with is um, technology and software, uh, which can cover anything from sort of basic IT skills all the way to like data science and computer programming. We work with trades, um, which could be anything from HVAC repair, electricians, plumbers, truck driving, uh, heavy equipment operations, and then healthcare. How do you determine, you mentioned quality education or the right education before, how do you determine which schools are doing a good job or not? Because there's there was a big crisis not long ago in the for-profit college space with regards to lending and uh, a lot of written off loans as a result. What process do you go to go through when you are 
selecting the schools to work with? Because it sounds like you go to schools, not directly to That's right. the borrowers. That's right. And we do that on purpose because um, first and foremost, again, you know, the mission is expand access to quality education. So if that's going to be your mission, you better have a clear definition of what quality means. Um, and we do. So we, before we partner with a school and offer any of the products or services that we have, we do a robust diligence of that school. That diligence that we run is both qualitative and quantitative. On the quantitative side, we get as much data as we possibly can on the program itself and on the careers that that program leads to. So our diligence on a truck driving program will be different than our diligence on a software development program because those are different careers with different outcomes. And then qualitative is understanding admissions criteria, uh, career placement activities, you know, like what value is this school providing aside from giving someone a certificate? Part of what you do is also providing capital to these students so that they can go to mm -hmm. school. Yep. What's the general range of terms that, that students are getting these loans? And does it differ by school or career right. or vocation? How do you, how do you sort all, through all that? So why don't I'll take a step back and kind of explain how the loan program works because it's really different from your sort of traditional student lender. Mm -hmm. I like to say we're not your typical student lender, um, uh, and then that'll kind of lead into how how we structure it and, and and how the pricing works. So, but a few key differences that are really important to understand when understanding Climb's business and and sort of why we exist um, are one because we've done that diligence and we understand the outcomes of the program, we actually underwrite the students who come in who are interested in these programs to the, to the income that they will earn when they graduate. And the idea there is a traditional student lender will look at somebody who's entering any type of educational program and underwrite them to who they are today. And so what it often means is that, let's say you're making twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year working in retail and you want to go to a program that will has a very high likelihood of getting you a fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year uh, wage on the other side, you'll still need to find a cosigner to be able to support the loan because today you make $20,000 a year. And that often means parents. And that often means parents. But the median age of our borrowers is 31 years old. So they don't necessarily have that person. And so right. we have made the decision to take a bet on the schools that we're working with and therefore the students who are attending them and say, we have hot, we, have, we believe that you will achieve right. your potential. And so we're gonna underwrite to that. Um, we also set the loan terms relative to that income to make sure it's affordable. And we have the schools uh, participate alongside CLIMB in the loan. So every loan What does we, that mean? So yeah, every loan we make, a portion of the tuition is held back from the school. So let's use an example where it's a $10,000 program. When the student enrolls, we might send the school $7,000. It depends on the program and the credit mix and all that, but let's just say we use 7000 as an example. We would send $7,000 to the school up front. They can keep that. They can earn that $3,000 that we didn't send to them over time if the students are able to pay their loans off. So what that does is it aligns interests in a much better way than is done typically, where the schools now have actual financial incentive to want to help their students. Have great career outcomes. Yeah, because then they're going to be able to pay. But, but the other thing they do, 
which for your audience will be interesting, is it enables us to price to the school and the student. So again, in t traditional student lending, if you're sending all of the money up front to the school, the only way to protect yourself from losses, right, of people not being able to pay, is either by requiring cosigners or, you know, limiting your underwriting, or by charging higher interest rates. In this way, we're able to actually, we have no FICO cutoff for our lending program. Um, so we're able to approve a, f a wide range of students. It's just the schools participate. And so that's another and price. What, what are the what's the range of terms uh, from maturity of loan, payback period of time, and interest rate? So our what, average what? interest rates around eight and a half percent. And again, our we don't have a FICO cutoff, so our I would say the median FICO is probably in the six eighty six ninety range. So it's definitely like a near prime population. So right. it's, you know uh, we think it's priced very fairly, and then the duration is about three and a half years on average. We do actually go out to seven years for programs that are longer, maybe a little more expensive, or a longer tenor will make it more affordable. Right. But we're on mostly three and a half. So the other side of a lending business is you 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 get to make the loan, but you need the money to yes. be able to make the loan. <laughs> so right. where do you where does Climb Credit get the capital to make those loans? How are you funding those loans? We have uh, facilities that we sell the loans into. So we have a sort of a marketplace model. We have a couple different partners that we work with, um, and the most prominent is Goldman Sachs. Uh, and, the, and the team at Goldman Sachs that we work with is the Urban Investment Group, which is part of the impact strategy at, at Goldman's. We are partnered with them. They're focused on sort of increasing economic mobility of people in this country, and that's what we do. So um, so we're able to partner with them earlier this year. Step back for a moment. You mentioned it before. The student loan industry has about $1.6 outstanding today. We read constantly that America has a student loan crisis. Are we in a crisis, is that, or is this just normal course? Are we better educated now than we were before and more people borrowing to get great educations? What's your take on where we are today? I don't think we're in a student loan crisis. I think we're in a college cost crisis. Uh, I think that there's a lot of focus put on the loans, which are definitely a problem. But the loans in and of themselves actually aren't the problem. It's the cost to get the education and the time it takes to get that education that leads to people needing to borrow excessive amounts of money that doesn't make sense relative to the outcomes that you see on the other side. And that's the problem as I see it. Realistically, if you look at like even the interest rates that are being charged on student loans, they're not, I mean, sometimes they're high, but they're, these aren't, you know. It's not credit cards. No, they're not 18, 20, 25% interest rates. It's just, they're just too big. And then there's a question of why are they so big? And it's because it's so expensive, you know, and college has outpaced inflation like nearly Forever. like 3x for whatever yeah. or 5x for a long time for 30 too. years. Yeah. You know, a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who look at a bachelor's degree as the ticket, right? That is the way out of whatever, you know, whatever poverty cycle you're in or whatever class you find yourself in today. And that is absolutely the case for some people, but it's not the case for everyone. And if you look at some of the stats around higher education today, they're really scary 
40% of people who start a four-year degree don't finish in six years. 65% of people who graduate from a four-year degree struggle to find their first job. And 50% of the people who do get their first job didn't even need a bachelor's degree for that job to begin with. So you look at that and you're like, okay, the system is definitely working for some people. But there's a lot of people it's not working for. And so... And, and it's more expensive than it's ever been. Like, we need to start coming up with solutions and alternatives and more creative ways to educate our young people. And, by the way, our not-so-young people and our every all the people. Because the workforce continues to change. The needs of, of, of employers and the skills that are needed continue to change. And we can't rely on an antiquated system of you're 18 years old, you go get a bachelor's degree, and now you're educated, you know, unless you decide to go get some, you know, $100,000 master's. It's just, it, that's, not, that's not the way it is going to work anymore. What should students think about before they take out money to fund their educations? What are, do you have any do's and don'ts or advice for students as they think about this? It depends a little bit on where you are. And again, from my perspective, a student is not necessarily an 18-year-old, you know. Correct. But in any case, if you're going to spend money on education, do the hard, like, do the planning. What are you going to do with this? What is your ultimate goal? Why do you want this education? And if you don't have a good answer to that, I think you need to rethink whether you want to spend a lot of money on it. You know, I mean, that's the, you know, like understand what the outcomes are. And so I I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. But I think that the challenge right now is that college has gotten so expensive, but yet that's the de facto path for everyone, including people who literally are going to have to borrow. It's almost in our culture, right? Yes. It's in our, our cultural DNA at this point. And I think that there are... I think as employers, we need to, like, challenge ourselves to consider people that don't have bachelor's degrees for jobs where maybe that isn't necessary. And I think as parents and counselors and advice givers, we need to empower young people to think about other paths uh, when they're 18 that don't cause them to have hundreds of thousand dollars worth of debt if that's what the result is going to be. That doesn't mean that you're never going to go to college, you know, but you see the trend like, you know, Obama's daughter took a year off to go travel, like, which is obviously a luxury she had because she had access to, to money. But but you see this is like this starting to be a trend of people saying, like, I see what's happening. I see the, the challenges. I want to know more about myself or about right. what my interests are before I go there. But that's a question that people who particularly don't have access to a college fund, I think, are more seriously asking themselves. I think that you that people that do have the benefit of kind of going and not knowing why. We're going to shift gears sure. back to the, the working world a little bit. You've had a range of experiences from a work point of view, both at large traditional financial institutions, Mm -hmm. as well as startups and the fintech world. Can you talk about some of the differences in those work environments and also talk about if you're a young person, sort of at the beginning 
end of your career, where do you learn more? Do you learn more at a startup or do you learn more at a traditional place with all the training and structures that exist there? Oh, man. We could do a whole podcast on just this. Um, (laughs) So I would say uh, that I find it really hard to give people advice outside of my own experiences. But I benefited from learning how a company that's scaled, so like Amex, Citibank, those are, you know, at one point they were startups (laughs) hundreds of years ago. Uh, But uh, to figure out kind of, I wouldn't say best in class, although sometimes it was, but you sort of see how things work once they're working. Like a really simple example would be like performance management. So Amex had a really, really, I would say a really robust performance management system that like bothered people and was like sometimes annoying. You'd like fill out these things or whatever, but, but it was like really clear and whatever. So then, so I kind of, that was like all I ever knew because I worked there and then City had something similar, but, but Amex's was like a little bit more structured and like really well known by everyone, you know, like it was, it was like kind of drilled in. And, and then when we started Orchard at some point, like we started getting feedback from, you know, we're starting to grow. We have 20 employees, 30, people are like, I, when am I going to get promoted? When am I going to get a race? Like, am I doing a good job? And you realize, like, I'm like, think back to my time at Amex, and I'm like, oh, that's why we had that. Like, that's why they did the one through five and the whatever, was because people want to know how they're doing. They want to know what path they're on. And maybe the way Amex did it could be annoying sometimes, but at least they had something, right? And so that, I think, gave me a little bit more like structure to my thinking about like, okay, well, what did I like about that there? And like, how do I think it could be like a little bit better and more like oriented towards like our values or whatever. But I think being at a big company helps you sort of see what it looks like when it's scaled. And what about some of the training in in your world? Credit analysis is so core to what you've done throughout your career. Do the big companies offer those type of trainings better than an entrepreneurial company, which is kind of making up the systems as they go a little bit and figuring out what's important, what's not, learning learning as you go, whereas Amex or City has decades right. of data, right? right? They know, you think they are going to know how to evaluate and how to price credit pretty well at this point and how to teach that to, right. to their employees. I would say, so I thought the train, you know, it's hard to really remember. I think the training the training at both companies was strong. Um, But I would say where I, what I thought was particularly at Amex really useful was like management training. And you get the time because the company is like not like constantly fighting for survival. You get the time to like learn how to be a manager. Right. And like go to the, like, here's what it means to be someone's boss. Right. Right. And that, I found really useful and applicable to to then be able to leverage in a startup more than the like how to underwrite credit. But my advice to kind of the last part of your question would be, I I would not recommend I I would never give a blanket advice like when you're starting out go big or go work at a startup or go work at a big company because it's just so different for everybody. But I would say, either way, the thing to understand is. What are you going to be working on and who's your manager? If, especially if it's your first job. If it's your first or second job, you just need to know those two things. Because 
you uh, using Amex again as an example, like I had my, it was actually my second boss at Amex was a woman who Tina, who I actually talk about on a fairly regular basis because she made a complete difference in my career. She was within the framework of Amex. There was a lot of things that were there to enable her to do that, but it was her. And I saw, like I had heard that she like when I worked there and was interested in my next role, I'd heard that she was really good and like right. sought her out. Um, and that worked really well for me. And that's that's the advice I would give to people is like make sure you're interested in the mission of the business and what they're doing, what they're building, but like know what the role is. Like it should be something that you want to do and know who's gonna be directly managing you, because that person will have more influence on your life, like not your career, your life. Right. Than anybody else until you go do something else. <laughs> It's just the truth. Right. Right. That's very good advice. Switching gears to a slightly more uh, personal topic, but also near and dear to my heart as a father of twins, twin girls. Um, you are a woman in a traditionally male-dominated uh, industry, financial services. You're also a woman in the fintech tech world. So it's kind of like a double whammy it's there. It's a double whammy. <laughs> um, Lots of men. <laughs> yeah. How do you do you think about this often? Does it does it enter your mind? Does it affect the way you do your job? Um, has it impacted you at all at Climb or before? It's so hard to know, you know, because you just have your own experience. But I I would say that I think that any negative that might exist in being able to fundraise or be taken seriously or anything like that is outweighed by the positive and the positive being that I think there's a real movement and interest by all sides of sort of investors and partners of, of people wanting to see women be in charge and like there being like I think a sincere appreciation for women who are taking on the top role and despite the fact that there's not a lot of us doing it. So I, I think that that's a positive because um, there's more support than I think that there ever has been. And then also I think in attracting talent, being a woman CEO means that you can attract really strong women operators and executives because it's exciting for them to see a woman in the top role. And so... You know, climb is, I, we might, I don't know the exact number. We're like somewhere between 60 and 65% women, I, including like our engineer. I mean, the whole company is is actually more female than male. I think part of that is we're in education and, and you know, we have, um, which, you know, tends to be bent towards women, I guess. But I think more of it is just that if you see that, you see that the leadership is female, then as a female, you're like, okay, this is a place where I can do well. Squashing the Markets podcast is not only about fintech, but also about investing. And so I'm, I'm curious about your approach to personal investing and saving for the future and how you go about that. Is it more ad hoc? Do you have a plan in place? Is it programmatic? Um, any thoughts on your personal investing for the future? Okay, so that's that's been a journey for me. I've tried a lot of different things, and where I've settled is I do have a plan. I run it myself. I have optimal allocation that I forget what the numbers actually are, but between like stock, bonds, and other types of fixed income investments, and then 
random, like, shoot the moon type things. And I just try, and every month I check where everything's at and reallocate where needed to stay towards my optimal allocation. With stocks, I primarily use a combination of Vanguard and Wealthfront and Betterment. Actually, I have a little bit with Betterment, too. Uh, Wealthfront and Betterment being the robo-advisors, Vanguard right. just being like an ETF. And then actually at Climb, we have a 401k that's in, I think, also Vanguard. Um, anyway, so so that's what I do on the stock and bond side. And then I have... Uh, so I own some rental income properties. Well, I do some sort of REITs and things like that on the real estate side, but then I, I actually own a few houses that uh, are just like cash flowing, fixed, basically fixed income investments. I've invested on a couple of the real estate platforms that are, are in the kind of fintech ecosystem like Fundrise and a couple others. And then I own uh, a little bit of Bitcoin. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All depends when you buy. Bought, yeah. bought your Bitcoin. Yeah, <laughs> but I do own a little bit of Bitcoin. Gotcha. That's is that would you put that in the shoot the moon? Yeah, yeah, that's part bucket. of the shoot the moon. Yeah, and, if you and, were, and I and earn and I earn interest on it with BlockFi. So this podcast is what we call the lightning round, and I'm going to give you two words or a pair, a pair, and you have to choose one, but no explanation required. You just have to pick one out of the two. Okay. All right. So here we go. Hedge funds or venture capital? Venture capital. Public relations or social media? Social media. Silicon Alley or Silicon Valley? Silicon Alley. High FICO score or graduate degree? Uh. <laughs> Stumped you. We'll move on. Pass. Pass. <laughs> Equity or debt? Equity. Apple or Amazon? Amazon. Learning Chinese or learning coding? Learning coding. Pay down debt or invest? That's not fair. <laughs> uh, it totally depends. I know. Invest. I know. I know. <laughs> Here, here's my most unfair one female CEO or majority female workforce? Female CEO. By the way, you have both at your company, it sounds like. Yeah. So could have answered that way. Well, one will follow the other. <laughs> Last two, data or privacy rights? Privacy rights. Last one, Bitcoin or U.S. dollar? Bitcoin. <laughs> Angela, pleasure having you on Squashing the Markets. I hope we get to do this again. That was great. Thanks for having me.